Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4AB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show... It's a bit mind-blowing, especially after I became the Australian of the Year WA finalist. People are congratulating me and I really appreciate that, but... I kind of shy away from that. I just do things because I'm passionate about. We spoke with one of the finalists of the Australian Human Rights Commission Awards. Also, a grassroots campaign wants to save an independent centre in Melbourne. And later today... We realised that there was a lot of potential for uh, using this kind of technology to really help people, especially in our rural and remote communities. A regional healthcare provider has won an initiative with a monitoring device to avoid hospitals. We found out how. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We are near across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the NDIS review was released yesterday at Parliament House after a long royal commission which included the experiences of Australians with a disability accessing the NDIS. One of the recommendations from the review is to remove the diagnosis as a first requirement to access the scheme, giving more priority on significant functional impairment. But how is the sector receiving the review? I asked CEO of Inclusion Australia, Catherine McAlpine, her thoughts about yesterday's review. Uh, the NDIS review report yesterday was very promising. It's a review that sets out a blueprint for a better NDIS that works better for people with disability and also that provides more supports for people with a disability outside the NDIS. So also Minister for uh, the NDIS, Bill Shorten, spoke at the National Press Club about the review and he's keen to implement this review. What are your impressions about his speech? I thought Bill Shorten's speech at the National Press Club yesterday, again, was very promising. I think that the review panel listened very carefully to the disability community They listen very carefully to people who are often not heard, including people with an intellectual disability who live in group homes and other experience other types of segregation. And so listening to the speech did make me feel optimistic that we were going to see genuine change and that that genuine change would be done in conjunction with the disability community to make sure that the policy that impacts on them is informed by them. So uh, a lot of the disability organizations as well in the sector, they, they have hope about the review. And there were some of the recommendations uh, from the review. One of them is removing the diagnosis as the first primary entry for the NDIS. Do you think this will help? I think as an overall comment, it is really important for the NDIA to look at the impact on people's impairments on their lives and look at the supports that they need. And so that doesn't need a diagnosis to go with it. Certainly as part of an overall look at someone's support needs, obviously the actual disability that they have is relevant, but it shouldn't be the basis of the decisions because the impact on one person can be quite different to the impact on another. Now, what other points would you like to see implemented that were not in the review? I think the review looked at a lot of the really important issues 
I think one of the really important issues, if you were to compare the disability support system with the health support system, anyone who needs healthcare gets it. We need to have a disability system that anyone needs support can get it. But just like in the health system, you might get your support from an allied health practitioner or a GP or your local pharmacist before you go to a tertiary hospital. In the same way, people with disabilities should be able to get supports in local communities, in small amounts, purpose right now, before they end up having to have an individualised plan in the NDIS. So I think that overall narrative of a more inclusive community where the states and territory systems that include education and early childhood and justice and child protection, for example, that all of those systems are more inclusive and more responsive to the needs of people with disability. I think that overall view is very positive and so I don't have a problem with that. When it comes to some of the specifics, there are some recommendations that will need to be worked through very carefully. And also we would like to see more about supporting people with disability and particularly including people with an intellectual disability get into work. And how do you see the NDIS in the future after the release of this review? Well, the NDIS in the future is not going to change tomorrow because these are very big changes. So what we will see and what should happen is that the NDIA and the government work with the disability community in terms of what the implementation looks like and what the detail looks like. So we're not looking for change overnight. What we're looking is a really considered, organised period of change to make sure that any person with a disability who needs support can get support. But then if you were to look at a five-year plan or a 10-year plan for the NDIS, I would like to see both an NDIS that is fit for purpose and that people with disability get the supports that they need. But the NDIS is part of a bigger ecosystem of the Australia's disability strategy. And what I really want to see is a community where people with disability are welcome and supported. And that means that people get used to working, um, studying beside people with disability, living beside people with disability, working beside people with disability in all the aspects of their life. And so this idea of full inclusion and an NDIS that supports people to be included is the vision that we're all working towards. As the disability representative organisation for people with an intellectual disability and their families, I would note that we saw in the Disability Royal Commission that people with an intellectual disability disproportionately experience violence and abuse, uh, neglect, segregation. They experience stigma from the, the rest of the community. And so what we would like to see is, as well as the NDIS review recommendations, that we also look at the Disability Royal Commission recommendations and think about what a safe community and an inclusive community where everyone is welcome and everyone is supported might look like in the future. That was CEO of Inclusion Australia, Catherine McAlpine. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. Tonight, the Australian Human Rights Commission will announce the winner of their awards in Sydney, recognizing the efforts of extraordinary Australians advocating for human rights. Michelle Turby is one of the finalists of this award, thanks to her work with the WA Police.
Just over a year ago, she lost her 15-year-old Nunger Jamatji son Cassius, who was assaulted on his way home from school in Perth and died 10 days later. Since the beginning of the year, Miss Turby has been working with WA police to train officers in dealing sensitively with victims of crime. The Wires contributor from First Nations Media Australia, Janine Kelly, asked Michelle Turby what she shares during the police training. I take them through a journey of me, myself, 24-7. So there is some funny stuff. There is some very confronting and sad stuff as well because I don't want to be doing all the sad stuff all the time and having people cry in front of me. So it covers my um, journey of losing my husband to cancer and then it comes to Cassius, goes to negative experiences that I had with Cassius, the first one being when he was assaulted. He had some mates with him. Cassius and another boy were chased um, by the perpetrators. And the police came, the ambulance came, and they just left those boys there with their own devices. So it was like double trauma for them. So that was the first negative experience. I thought there would be more of a duty of care applied there. The second one um, was when Cassius was in hospital. Um, There wasn't a police statement taken and I understand that people with head injuries might not be wise to do that. But Cassius had already identified one of the people and was starting to identify another The first person that he did was arrested that night. So I just kind of feel that, yeah, I understand, you know, um, their rights um, at the police, but it would have been Cassius' chance to. What is the response from the new police recruits of the training? It's been very, very positive, actually. Nothing negative at all. I'll give you two examples, actually. One was from a new recruit. Their training is intense. It's a full six months. Was This is really good because a lot of the training that we get and studying is second, third, fourth hand, but this is first hand and it's raw and real. Another um, piece of feedback was from an officer in charge because I not only do new recruits now, it looks like I'm doing all of them. <laughs> That's amazing. The feedback from an officer who'd been – in the force for 37 years was um, best presentation that I've ever, ever been a part of, which I 100% learnt from. Um, I will follow up days after, weeks after and months, um, and thank you for the reminder. You've you've, uh, recently been nominated for the Human Rights Medal by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Um, It's a bit mind-blowing, especially after I became the Australian of the Year WA finalist. So now I've also got the Human Rights Medal to go through as well. So, yeah, it's 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 awkward, you know. People are congratulating me and I really appreciate that, but I kind of shy away from that because my purpose in life isn't to have accolades or, or get prizes or anything like that. I just do things because I'm passionate about what I can do for people and, and hope, hopefully um, make a difference no matter what size is good. What was your initial response when you were asked to work with the new recruits within the WA Police Force? It would be really, really good. And um, more of it needs to be done because 
there's a smaller focus on community and actual people um, because the police are just absolutely swamped with the day-to-day stuff that they have to attend to. So, yes, I put my hand up if it's to help um, other people. Yeah, definitely. So what would Cassius be saying about the work you're doing today? Cassius's favourite saying is basically I'm unstoppable but and if people tried to sway me on anything or argue with me, he would always say, don't bother, Mama's on a mission. That was finalist of the Australian Human Rights Commission Awards, Michelle Turvey, ending the report by First Nations Media Australia's Janine Kelly. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs and community and Indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Taree on Tubob Radio, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. The Institute of Postcolonial Studies is an independent organization located in Melbourne, committed to advancing the recognition of cultural difference and encouraging mutual engagement and reconciliation. Members and friends of the Institute are campaigning to save and transform it into an institute taking up anti-racist and anti-colonial work in the Australian colony and transnationally. But the Institute's board has removed its membership sign-up form, creating further barriers in community participation. The campaign also wants a more diverse board. Triple A's presenters of Let's Talk, Kevin Yeo-Yu and Ruby Wharton, started asking campaigner Mujib Nabulsi how this issue started. Basically, IPCS was essentially being run by Dr. Carlos Moreo, who's a Venezuelan scholar activist been living in so-called Australia for a long time. And Carlos basically brought on people like myself, many, many others, mainly young scholar activists and other people who wanted to, you know, talk about theory and talk about it and how it can inform activism and organizing. And so this has been happening for a number of years. And the after party, for example, of the uh, Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference in 2019 was at IPCS. But it was founded as a place to be independent of universities. So it has no affiliation to universities. In recent years, obviously, it has come, there's been a lot of criticism about Well, firstly, its name. You know, this is still obviously a colony. And that's been something that, you know, many people, myself included, have been wanting to change. But it it has provided IPCS. It is building. The Institute owns this building in North Melbourne, has like amazing facilities. You know, members have been able to put on events. So it's provided this great resource to community, to organizers, scholar activists. Um, More recently, So after a series of Black Palestine solidarity events this year, after an abolitionist study group was cancelled by the current board and Carlos Moreo was fired, recently the all-white, undemocratically elected board has ramped up their efforts. Essentially, they have refused our demands of an open letter, which are very basic demands of having a democratically elected board having a majority First Nations board, and we proposed seven new board members 
four of whom assassinations, the other three are migrant settlers of colour, and they've rejected this, this all-white board, and instead of, you know, they're kind of sensing that they will be replaced, instead of ceding this space, they're wanting to maintain power, instead of ceding this space and letting it be transformed into a place that can be really supportive of community struggles and a genuinely anti-colonial space, they've decided now to sell the building, dissolve the institute entirely. And this has come at a time, obviously, you know, like it's it's disgraceful that they're rejecting a board, a majority First Nations board after the referendum. There's also a Palestinian board member um, that we proposed, Tasneem Samak. And what we have is just like a prime example of white established academics trying to maintain their power and consolidate it. And they want to sell this building for more than $6 million. Wow. They've called us, you know, I've just told you our demands, a democratically elected majority First Nations board. It's not like you're asking for, you're not asking for the moon and the stars. I mean, you're asking for, you know, what what most people would perceive to be fair and just. Mm. Mahib, I'm wondering, um, for for listeners who want to get involved, who want to stay up to date with any of the campaign to save Mm -hmm. IPCS, how can can listeners get involved? Well, firstly, um, by following the campaign online, on Twitter, at Save IPCS, on Instagram, at Save Postcolonial Studies, and tomorrow night at 6 till 7 p.m., Mianjin uh, time, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Um, we have a public meeting that's online. So if um, people head to our socials, they'll see the link for that. The link will be posted there. Uh, we also have an open letter in Overland, which contains like more details about what's happened, about our demands. And yeah, those are kind of the main things that people can do at the moment. And there will be like regular updates on our socials about what's happening because this is moving very fast. They're really trying to sell the building immediately, basically. Um, and people just like sharing our stuff on socials is really, really does help us a lot to create this awareness and, you know, to bring attention to like the shameful actions of this board and pressure them in that way while we're also working in other ways to try and stop what they're trying to do. That was campaign organizer Mujib Nabulsi speaking with Triple A's Kevin Yeoyu and Ruby Wharton. Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire, daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. A regional healthcare provider has been named the overall champion at the Regional Australia Institute and Ambience Innovate Grant Program this year. Observacare was the winner in the health category by developing a wearable sensor to measure patients' vital signs, avoiding patients going to hospital. This will alleviate the health system in regional New South Wales, which is already at its tipping point. The Wires contributor from TuneFM, Ash Taylor, asked co-founder of Observacare, Deborah Martin, what motivated her to develop 
this technology? Well, just to be clear, what the innovation is actually in the service model that mm-hmm. we've built around the technology. But just to go back in time to COVID times, of course, where a lot of things started. My husband, Rod, is also as well as being a GP here in town, he's a senior lecturer here at the School of Rural Health. And he's the then head of the school, Dr. Professor Rod McClure, and he were concerned during that, that COVID period, especially before we really knew what the impact of the disease was going to be on our community. But they were really concerned to be able to keep our community, the hospital and the broader community outside of Armadale safe. And so they started exploring ways to use remote patient monitoring technology to kind of build a, a hospital in the home model that would work for to, to keep people monitored, whether they were here in town or you know, on a property or in a town a couple of hours away from Armadale. Through that process, Rod and Rod <laughs> and uh, another of their colleagues, Alison McDonald, set about writing up some protocols for what the patient journey would look like under a remote patient monitoring service. Unfortunately, we didn't get overrun with COVID, <laughs> which was yeah. good during 2020 or beyond. But the innovation of the protocols and looking at what the patient journey would be like, where they might be on monitoring at home, we might see signs of deterioration through that. What would then happen? You know, would they be safe to stay at home? And we realised that there was a lot of potential for uh, using this kind of technology to really help people, especially in our rural and remote communities. So how many people has uh, Observer Care helped so far? The technology is is relatively new and novel. We use an off-the-shelf technology that we purchased through a a tech partner. What's novel in our innovation is the service model that we're wrapping around it. How does this work within the health system that we currently have? So because it's so novel, though, the the technology and also our service model, our focus to date has been on familiarising ourselves with the technology, what it can and can't do, and getting it onto patients. These are wearable devices, so we have to actually place them on patients and seeing how they respond to it. So will the results be released in a, a study or a report? Well, we're, yeah, we're in the process yeah. of writing up a report. Um, yeah, we, we have to report, obviously, back. We have ethical approval through the university's research services here. Uh, so we are in the process of writing, reporting back to them. We obviously want to report back to their care facility as well. Yeah. yeah. Is there uh, federal funding or state funding that you guys are accessing? At the moment, Ash, we are bootstrapped. Yep. <laughs> and so we have, you know, we've been careful and judicious in our purchase of equipment and and how we've deployed our time. And we've obviously both of us got substantive jobs yep. Yep. <laughs> that we're doing. There is a lot of potential to access funding to, you know, at various state and federal levels. Mm. And I have to say the NBN is a fantastic example of yeah. being supported. You just won the, the Innovation Award for Health, right? Thank Which is, that's a fantastic achievement. Thank you. Yeah. So how, <laughs> how did that feel? Oh, well, humbling yeah. is the first thing because we were selected as one of two finalists in the health category and there were about five or six categories all up. And so we had the chance to go to Sydney last week and meet all the other finalists in all the categories. And I have to say, every every person we met told a great story about what their innovation was. And everyone I met, I thought, oh, that's a great idea. Why has nobody done that before? Or 
what a great use of digital technology that we can now access. You know, this is the amazing thing. The MBN has, has opened up the regional Australia to the world. So how does Observer Care differ to other remote monitoring services that might exist? Well, I think, Ash, the main thing that we've been able to bring to our service is this very in-depth understanding of the social and the health and the clinical needs of rural and remote Australia. As I said, we've been living and working here for over 20 years. There are other remote patient monitoring processes and, and services, I think, being established, especially in metro parts of Australia. We deliberately went looking for a technology that would enable us to do continuous remote patient monitoring so we can place a device on a patient and get continuous signal so that we can see over time, trends over time. So if we're getting 24 hours worth of monitoring data, which, that this means that we can see what your vital signs are doing. Co-founder of ObserverCare, Deborah Martin Day, speaking with TuneFM's Ash Taylor. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.